There's something about a great story. It has a profound impact on us. We carry it with us like an old friend living in our imagination. Great stories take us anywhere in space and time. Some transport us to the distant future, and others take us back in time thousands of years. They have to do with the place I come from, Crete. The stories that I was reading as a kid had to do with ancient Greek myths and ancient Greek history, and I was fascinated with all these characters. For Manilis Kalaitis, books were a gateway to his history and heritage. As a young boy growing up in Greece, Manilis saw himself in those mythological heroes. Or perhaps he saw something he aspired to become. At our core, humans are storytellers, and books are one of the oldest technologies we use to document and preserve our stories. Stories that help us make sense of the world and better understand our place in it. Books are everywhere. One of the most beloved products or gifts everywhere in the world is transnational. It's uh, irrelevant of religion, uh, gender, age group, uh, culture, whatever. So you can find it everywhere. So it was a challenge for me to see what can I do with books, basically, as an industrial designer. But the printed book has remained relatively unchanged for hundreds of years. So Manolis began to wonder if books and the way they tell stories weren't ripe for a makeover. By infusing the printed page with conductive ink, wirelessly connected to digital devices, Manolis set out to change the experience of reading. Not by replacing the printed book, but by using technology to augment it. He calls his invention the bit book. What he didn't imagine was how his journey would take on the sort of epic struggles, the twists and setbacks of his beloved Greek myths. But Manolis didn't take direct inspiration from his ancient heroes like Odysseus or Hercules or Achilles. One inspiration would be the rise of the electronic book or the e-book, which was first created in 1971 when a student named Michael Hart founded Project Gutenberg and set out to digitize and share humanity's great works of literature. His project is in a way idealistic. His whole idea is to disseminate this knowledge everywhere to everybody. Uh, freely. The internet didn't exist in a widely fashion. Uh, digital device didn't exist uh, where people could get those digital files and, and read uh, those Project Gutenberg uh, books. Uh, what he thought of was pioneering for its time, definitely. In their own way, Manolis Kalaitis and Michael Hart each set out to change the way we experience books. And each would struggle for years to realize their vision. And their stories are page-turners themselves. I'm Julia Furlan, and this is Ahead of Its Time, an original podcast from Setup, a show about the tech underdogs no one realized would shape the future. SetApp's versatile app subscription service empowers you to step into a new era of productivity. So if you scroll down a little bit on the main page, you'll see there's a link to the uh, top 100, which I need to find here. But if I click on the first link there, I get to the top 100 ebooks yesterday. So number one from yesterday is Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Number two, this is Greg Newby, 
He's the chair and director of Project Gutenberg and a close friend of its founder, Michael Hart, the man who invented the ebook. Sherlock Holmes by author Conan Doyle. And then uh, number five is The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Now, The Great Gatsby was copyright protected in the United States until last year, until 2021. And we made The Great Gatsby available, and it rapidly became one of our most popular uh, ebooks in the collection. Project Gutenberg is the world's first and oldest digital library. It's a volunteer-run initiative to digitize and democratize access to books in the public domain. And it does that by making the works free and fully available online. Since it was founded, Project Gutenberg has built a digital library of more than 65,000 ebooks, all of which you can read online or download to tablets and e-readers. Today, millions of ebooks are downloaded from Project Gutenberg every month, but it took years for it to find its place. Its long, bumpy story began years before the rise of personal computers and long before the internet. In 1971, Michael Hart was an undergraduate student at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. Michael was involved in the school's computer lab, which was connected to the ARPANET. The ARPANET was basically the predecessor of the internet and used phone lines to link computers at government-funded research institutions. Michael's brother got him an account at the lab with unlimited access at a time when computers cost millions of dollars. So computer time back then was a precious and expensive commodity. The problem for Michael was deciding how to use it. Then, on the 4th of July, while Michael was wandering around the town of Urbana amongst the bunting and banners, after watching the parade and fireworks, inspiration struck. He went to a convenience store to get some snacks. And when he checked out of the convenience store, they put his snacks in a bag. And they, because it was the 4th of July, they put a facsimile edition of the United States Declaration of Independence. So just like a one-page, uh, you know, legal size sort of flyer. So right at that moment, he said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this U.S. Declaration of Independence. I'm going to sit down in the lab at one of these teletype terminals with the the clackety-clack and the the long yellowing scroll of paper, and I'm going to type in the U.S. Declaration of Independence. And it took him most of the night. And then he shared it with everyone he could find on the Internet of the day. So luckily, he's not credited with inventing spam. At the same time, uh, maybe he did, but he did invent the electronic book. He said computers are going to be for reading books. Michael's clackety-clacking didn't end there. He identified other copyright-free books, he recruited volunteers, and slowly began digitizing works like the Bible, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and the works of Shakespeare and Mark Twain. By the late 1980s, Project Gutenberg had digitized more than 300 books. When Greg Newby, then an undergrad at the University of Albany, received an unusual email from a friend. It was Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. I read it, I thought to myself, I get it. I understand. Ebooks or electronic texts, what we were calling them at the time, this makes a lot of sense because I can save this and refer to it anytime I want. I can very easily do things I can't do with a printed book. If I just want to look for a particular phrase, I could just hit a couple of keys on my keyboard and I can search for that particular phrase. I can get a quote from the book. 
I can extract, I can take a paragraph and put it into my, you know, my master's thesis or something like that. So this is how I first learned of ebooks. Greg was fascinated with Project Gutenberg and the potential of ebooks, but there were many others who weren't quite as optimistic about this new technology. And of course, I saw the value in ebooks, but there were a lot of people in the library profession that didn't see the value. It means that you don't need a librarian to find a book. You don't need a bookstore to find a book. Well, this is pretty threatening to the publishing industry, isn't it? Because the publishers want to be your intermediary. Not only do they want to be the people that decide who gets published, they want to be the organization that decides which ones get the big display at the bookstore. Opposition to Project Gutenberg grew. Publishers, librarians, and scholars, you know, people who were the traditional gatekeepers of literature, they argued that the volunteer-driven transcriptions would contain errors and inaccurate translations. They believed ebooks would compromise the integrity and meaning of the works. But the harder they pushed back, the more Michael dug in. They were critical to the point of where some would say, you just shouldn't even be doing it. Project Gutenberg shouldn't exist. You are, you are doing a disservice to humanity by uh, digitizing literary works. And of course, Michael kept on doing it. With all that blowback, it would be easy to understand if Michael had doubts about the future of his project. Those doubts all but vanished one day in 1989 when he was on the phone with a woman from the Library of Congress when something unexpected happened. And he heard this big sound over the phone and the woman he was talking with dropped the phone and ran off and then she came back in a couple of minutes and she was laughing. Michael asked what, what was up. And uh, she told the story that her son had been playing around on her computer and on her computer he found a copy of Project Gutenberg's Alice in Wonderland. And of course, Alice in Wonderland is the first ebook that I ever saw as well. But this kid on the computer had started to read it. He mentioned it to his buddies at school and then uh, several of them came home with him the day afterwards and the next day, even more kids followed. I guess they were intrigued, not just by Alice's adventures in Wonderland, but also by the fact of reading it on a computer. And there were so many kids uh, watching the uh, computer screen that they were all sitting on a, on a big oak chair and the oak chair broke. So that was a big crash that Michael heard. And Michael realized at that moment that ebooks were going to succeed. In 1991, after finishing his PhD, by sheer coincidence, Greg landed a faculty position at the University of Illinois in Urbana, the same city where Michael was living and running Project Gutenberg. I saw an article, a newspaper article in the local paper in the fall of 91 that featured Michael Hart and talked about his volunteer effort. And it also talked about how some people thought this was the wackiest thing ever, you know, that nobody would ever want to read a book on a computer. But I called up Michael. And uh, we immediately hit it off. And of course, I became involved with uh, Project Gutenberg. Project Gutenberg was born out of an ambitious idea, but Michael had to wait for technology to catch up before the true potential of the ebook could be realized. In time came home computing and years later, the internet, and new scanner technology that sped up transcription. At around the same time, a student at the University of Illinois, who Michael and Greg both knew, was building the world's first internet browser. The browser made the internet much easier to navigate and was key to getting it into people's homes. Yet for all the innovations and moving parts in this story, it was the introduction of a single product 
backed by a digital giant that catapulted ebooks into modern culture. The Kindle made ebooks totally mainstream and almost overnight. It was one of these really big events where it was built on the shoulders of the giants that came before it. It was not even all that innovative, but it hugely raised public consciousness. And it also, at the same time, hugely legitimized the notion of electronic books versus print books. Suddenly, ebooks were no longer a fringe. Suddenly, you could get just about any book as an ebook. And this made a tremendous difference. Consumers responded. By Christmas 2009, the Kindle e-reader became one of the most popular gifts of the season, and the sale of e-books on Amazon eclipsed those of printed books. Two years later, in September 2011, Michael Hart died of a heart attack at the age of 64. After a four-decade struggle facing limited technology, doubt, and doubters, he had lived to see e-books find traction worldwide. I think Michael absolutely believed that he was using electronic books to shift the world, but the world didn't necessarily know it was shifted until it woke up and discovered that it had moved. But yeah, I think over over time, you know, once the Kindle was out, people that were in the know realized that he was, uh, you know, essentially he was right all along. The incredible revolutionary part was doing this so that as many people as possible can have access to as much of the world's written word, unlimited redistribution. Not thinking it in terms of books, think of it in terms of knowledge. Think of it in terms of opportunity. Michael Hart never set out to replace printed books with his ebook. His goal was to create a free worldwide gateway to great works of writing and literature. And while Greg Newby respects those who embrace the tactile joy of print and paper, he's a true believer in the magnifying effect of electronic books. If you take a nicely printed book and you turn it into a file and it's a plain text file, yeah, you did lose something. But on the other hand, the story is still there and the story suddenly can go out to thousands of people as opposed to your print book, which can only be in one person's hands at a time. It's the emotional connection to the printed page, the thing that Greg says can get lost in translation when they're digitized, that's at the heart of what inspired Manilis Kalaitis to create the BitBook. This is also where my own personal affection about books comes in, which has to do with the physicality of the book, its materials, the emotion it evokes as a product and a medium, and my great interest and love for graphics, anything printed. Ebooks have grown in popularity over the years, but the printed book isn't going to disappear anytime soon. In the U.S., sales increased nearly 9% last year. But at the same time, 30% of Americans also read at least one ebook in 2021, which is up 5% from the previous year. Michael Hart helped introduce the world to ebooks, which today are instantly available, searchable, and thanks to light, compact readers, easily portable. Now, Manilis is moving books to what he believes is the next phase in their evolution. Project Gutenberg started in uh, 1971, where you didn't have ready available screens and so on. Downloading a digital file and reading from a screen uh, was a very novel idea. It required a new kind of reading experience. Uh, for sure. Bitbook does require the same, a new kind of reading experience, 
but a fundamentally different one. BitBook, put simply, is a print-digital hybrid. It's a printed paper book with circuits embedded into the pages, connected by Bluetooth to nearby devices. Touch a given word or image, and the book comes alive on a screen with additional text, video, pictures, music, and voices. And basically, if you see here, it's a printed button. And with your finger, basically, you're just touching it. And what it does is it connects to a speaker and it says, this is a giraffe. So for children to identify and learn animals. The next one is was an example of basically of uh, Googling a word, just Googling a word. So you read through Da Vinci Code and you don't know what Mona Lisa is. So you touch, let's say, on the word and then it uh, Googles all the images of Mona Lisa on your screen. This is what inspired me really to work on books, that I could do something that has remained unchanged for centuries as a medium and as a format. And me as a mechanical engineer, what can we do with that? One thing he set out to do is change the experience of reading. Studies suggest that people reading from screens and e-readers may have more difficulty navigating long passages than they would with print. Not only that, people retain information better if they read it directly from paper. But ebooks aren't without their own set of advantages, too. And to an extent, BitBook incorporates the benefits of both while creating new value of its own. One day, BitBook might transform how we read and learn, so it feels appropriate that the idea for it was born in the classroom. In 2005, Manolis was a student at London's Royal College of Art, and he was having trouble coming up with a year-end project. Nothing was inspiring me, and at some point I was listening to a lecture, and the person who was giving the lecture took a notebook out of his uh, bag. And I just know the moment he took out the notebook out of his bag, it just dawned on me, like, this is it. This is a product, a medium that's everywhere. So immediately, that was it. It was books. Manolis googled the word book and went down a research rabbit hole. He scribbled down ideas and printed out and glued anything interesting related to books into a notebook. One of the ideas that came to mind was I was looking at my shelf back then with my CDs. They are all in this plastic packaging, quite ugly plastic packaging. And basically the only thing that is worth it in a CD for me is the booklet, which has some information, some graphics, some illustrations. So I thought, what if actually the booklet was the CD itself? What if I could transfer the music as a digital file, which it is, Onto the leaflet, which is a printed leaflet, has uh, some beautiful illustrations usually and some graphics. So through these ideas, the basic ideas started coming into shape and that became a very interesting design challenge. Mixing graphics, paper, ink, conventional book binding practices, uh, thread, etc. with electronics, something that seems incompatible, was an amazing challenge. As his BitBook started to take shape, Manolis caught a break. In 2007, he was invited to speak at a Silicon Valley conference on the future of publishing. There he was, a relatively unknown entity in the tech world with no background in publishing, standing before a crowd of 200 people. Tougher still, 
He was scheduled to follow a talk by the CEO of Adobe, who had just assured the crowd that print was dead and that within five years, everyone would be reading from digital formats like PDFs. Manalis climbed to the stage and began to explain that maybe print wasn't dead. And in fact, it could be reinvented. Then he started to explain how BitBook worked. And basically, there was complete silence up to that point for 15 minutes. And then uh, I took the book and flipped through it, and I started touching on uh, the buttons that I made. And then uh, different things would pop up on the screen behind me, or music, or videos, etc. But the moment I pressed the first button, there was suddenly a huge gasp in the room. And then uh, started clapping. When I finished, it was a standing ovation, completely overwhelming, and person shouting, give this man a million dollars now. Things moved fast from there. First, Manalis attended an invitation-only Silicon Valley event called FooCamp. FooCamp is a multi-day conference where scientists and entrepreneurs from different disciplines who otherwise wouldn't get to work together can meet, share ideas, and collaborate. Here, Manalis would rub elbows with Larry Page, the co-founder of Google, and the man who helped start Wikipedia, Jimmy Wales. Oh, and this uh, one eccentric South African entrepreneur. I remember being in a tent with flip-flops and there was this uh, talk about 10 people uh, by Elon Musk. He was talking about uh, electric vehicles, basically. It's surreal to think that, but it was like very, I don't know, it's like very normal. When I came back to Europe and I was telling those stories, people thought I was bullshitting them. And it was through the reception, through the initial uh, exhibitions, talks, this conference, etc., that it became a business idea. That people who wanted, uh, they were like, okay, but what is actually the first commercial af- application of this? Soon, Manalis was in talks with Penguin Publishing about just that. Penguin planned to mark the 75th anniversary of the paperback with a special edition of Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy as a bit book. But the best of times for Manalis quickly became the worst of times. A few weeks after that, what happened is that my office caught fire because the next office who was building robots got fire in, in the night, which spread into my office and basically destroyed prototypes, documents, and my office uh, as well. A few weeks after that, came an email from Penguin saying basically that uh, due to the financial crisis, about a year after uh, Lehman Brothers collapse, most businesses at that point had slashed their marketing budgets. It was the first thing that slashed because of the financial crisis. Therefore, the project was also cancelled. With his office and his first BitBook deal in ruins, Manalis tried building a business around BitBooks, sinking much of his own money into the venture. The work was constant and the project became overwhelming. So Manalis decided it was time to take a break. However, at the same time, it was a pause. It, it never stopped. So my mind was always on this project. It's it's like a relationship that you have, and somehow it's always stays in the back of your mind. What could happen? And the thing is, during all these years that have passed, uh, interest has never diminished in terms of this project. And I was getting contacts from companies, individuals, prospective uh, users who were asking, how is it going? Are you still doing it? And this is how I decided to come back to it. 
Just as Michael Hart's mission to digitize the world's great works of classic literature took years to find momentum, Manolis struggled in his quest to take the printed book, and in a way, ebooks too, to the next level. He's been approached by top international book publishers, major music publishers, music producers, advertisers, digital media providers, and content creators, all interested in publishing content as a bit book. With his new team taking shape, Manolis is planning his first commercial release of BitBooks in late 2022. I was told that all the major publishers and uh, many people from Silicon Valley are looking to the future of publishing because as I saw it, they saw as well that basically publishing has to change. And I think it is the magic of uh, somebody experiencing firsthand touching on a piece of paper and then seeing something digital happen. Change through BitBook strikes the perfect balance between old and new to quite literally lift words, ideas, and images off the printed page. It elevates the reading experience to a place where the reader and the story are one, and the medium itself seems to vanish. And isn't this what our favorite stories do, regardless of how they're delivered? whether bound in leather or typed on a screen? The BitBook is a marriage of print and digital technology that may represent the second great evolution in written media over the past generation. And in a way, it's been made possible by Michael Hart's Project Gutenberg and the e-book. E-books are now out there. It is after Kindle became uh, very widely available and people started realizing, okay, this is excellent for this kind of experience, reading books in this kind of settings. Uh, printed books are good for some other stuff. And therefore, a bit book is more appropriate at this time in age. They're going to coexist with e-readers and other digital devices that we have now. And now that storytelling technology has changed, Greg Newby believes that technology might, in turn, change storytelling. So what we can imagine is with electronic books uh, having been invented in 1971, and now it's 50 years later, we can expect some further evolutions in how, how literature happens, how stories are told that go beyond the written word. And so when I hear about book books, I say, well, this is one area where we have an enabling technology that can make that sort of transformation happen. I see BitBook as potentially being the foundation of what will occur in the future, where people are telling stories in a different way. I'm Julia Furlan, and this is Ahead of Its Time, an original podcast from SetApp. Working on your next big thing? SetApp's productivity toolkit will help you stay focused and get stuff done. Head over to setapp.com to see if SetApp can help you bring your ideas to life.